A 5-4 ruling that women and girls have no constitutional right to an abortion. The lead starts right now. Perhaps the most consequential Supreme Court decision in decades. Roe v. Wade, the landmark case that federally protected the right to an abortion, overturned. Quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, wrote Justice Alito in the majority decision, which will have a seismic impact on girls' and women's reproductive autonomy. CNN is live as crowds swell outside the Supreme Court. Plus, the widespread impact where trigger laws now or soon will make abortion entirely illegal for any girl or woman, regardless of circumstances. Also on this monumental day, the first major gun safety legislation in decades on its way to the White House for President Biden's signature. How Democrats and Republicans came together to compromise. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with the historic decision from the United States Supreme Court, which has overturned Roe v. Wade, finding that the 167 million girls and women in the United States have no constitutional right to an abortion. Massive crowds gathered outside the high court in Washington, D.C. this afternoon, some celebrating, some protesting the 5-4 decision. Conservative Justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, leaving abortion rights as a question for each state to settle. The impact to girls and women across the United States will be, in many cases, immediate. At least 13 states have trigger laws on the books, meaning those states will ban abortions within the next 30 days. A dozen other states have indicated that they are likely to take the same action, banning abortions in the absence of Roe v. Wade. This decision, of course, was not unexpected, Republicans have been plotting for decades to get justices on the court to overturn the decision, believing abortion to be murder. And today's opinion closely mirrors the draft that was leaked to Politico last month. But for supporters of abortion rights, that does not make it any less upsetting. I am spitting mad over this. We have six extremist justices on the United States Supreme Court who have decided that their moral and religious views should be imposed on the rest of America. This is not what America wants. The ruling was celebrated by President Trump, who more than any other single American, with the possible exception of Senator Mitch McConnell, is responsible for this moment. The three justices he put on the high court all voted to overturn Roe. Today, Senators Manchin and Collins, who voted for Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, expressed outrage at the decision, given that during their confirmation hearings, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both seemed to suggest they would not vote the way they did today. The Supreme Court of the United States has held in Roe v. Wade that um, a fetus is not a person for purposes of the 14th Amendment. And the book explains that. Do you accept that? That's the law of the land. I accept the law of the land, Senator, yes. What would you say your position today is on a woman's right to choose? Well, as a judge... As a judge. As a judge, it is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Been reaffirmed many times. The Supreme Court's three liberals wrote a strongly worded rebuttal to today's decision, ending with this, quote, with sorrow for this court, but more for the many millions of American women who have today lost a fundamental constitutional protection, we dissent. CNN's Jessica Schneider starts off our coverage from the Supreme Court with a closer look at how this ruling will now be implemented across the United States. 
Roe v. Wade no longer the law of the land, with the Supreme Court overturning nearly 50 years of precedent, the court eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion and leaving all decisions concerning abortion rights to individual states. The final 5-4 majority opinion, strikingly similar to the draft from Justice Samuel Alito that was leaked last month. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, Alito writes. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. In a dissenting opinion, the court's liberal justices lament the current state of the conservative court, saying, with sorrow, for this court, but more for the many millions of American women who have today lost a fundamental constitutional protection, we dissent. The monumental move made possible by a conservative supermajority, including three of Donald Trump's nominees. Chief Justice John Roberts diverging somewhat from the majority, voting to uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, but stopping short of overturning Roe v. Wade. The decision is a turn for two of the justices who voted to overturn Roe after they seemed to indicate at their confirmation hearings they wouldn't. It is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. That's the law of the land. I accept the law of the land, Senator. Yes. We won't go back! Democrats, including President Biden, are outraged. This is not over. And urging voters to back candidates who back abortion rights in the midterm elections. How about those justices coming before the senators and saying that they respected the president of the court? This cruel ruling is outrageous and heart-wrenching, but make no mistake, it's all on the ballot in November. Protests are popping up around the country as individual states are set to move rapidly. 26 states are likely to ban abortion completely, including 13 states that have trigger laws on the books, which set abortion bans into motion as soon as Roe is overturned. Arkansas's governor tweeting, we are able now to protect life. And South Dakota's governor responding, as of today, all abortions are illegal in South Dakota. The Supreme Court's decision also could put other precedents at risk, like the right to same-sex marriage and access to contraception. Justice Clarence Thomas explicitly calling for the court to reconsider those other rulings, writing, we have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. While Alito promised nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. But the liberal justices warning no one should be confident that this majority is done with its work. And while about two dozen states are poised to ban abortion, there are 16 states plus the District of Columbia that have laws specifically protecting abortion rights. And Jake, some of those states are preparing right now for an influx of patients who might be crossing state lines in the future to get those abortion services. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider outside the Supreme Court for us. Thanks so much. Today, President Biden called on Congress to pass a federal law to codify Roe v. Wade, protecting a woman's right to abortion. It's a move that right now simply does not have the votes in the U.S. Senate. The president also lashed out at the Supreme Court, calling the majority extreme and far removed from the rest of the country. CNN's Phil Mattingly is live for us at the White House. Phil, besides asking Congress to pass this new law, is there any other action the White House might be considering? Jake, the president called the decision tragic, the day somber, but he was also quite candid that there is no executive order that can reestablish a constitutional right. There are very real limits to the president's authority on this issue. However, over the course of the last several weeks, last several months even, White House officials have been engaged in intensive deliberations and debates about what they can do. They have prepared over the Justice Department to fight any efforts to criminalize travel to states where abortion is still available. There are regulatory uh, hurdles 
hurdles that the administration is looking to get to do away with as it relates to abortion medication. Across the federal government, the administration has looked for avenues to try and address this issue in some way, shape or form. The limits, however, have underscored one point the president made and his team has made as well. They hope this will galvanize voters. Listen. It's a sad day for the country, in my view. But it doesn't mean the fight's over. My administration will use all of its appropriate lawful powers. But Congress must act. And with your vote, you can act. You can have the final word. And Jake, White House officials have been in communication with abortion rights groups throughout the course of the day, making clear today was not it. When it comes to the administration's position, they will be doing more in the weeks and months ahead. Phil Mattingly at the White House Forest, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss, Julie Rickleman. She argued before the court against the Mississippi law that would have banned most abortions after 15 weeks. That was the case at the center of today's decision. Julie, thanks for joining us. So in this opinion... Justice Alito argues that Roe v. Wade was, quote, remarkably loose in its treatment of the constitutional text by finding that abortion is part of a right to privacy, which Alito says is not actually in the Constitution. Tell me why you think he's legally wrong. Well, thanks so much for having me. A a few really basic reasons. The first, of course, is that for more than 100 years, the Supreme Court has said that the 14th Amendment and its explicit protection for liberty means that people have the right to make decisions about their bodies and about their families uh, and children, child rearing and issues related to marriage. So all of those have been protected for a hundred years under many, many different decisions. And the right to end a pregnancy was part of those protections. It's squarely in the middle of those 100 years of decisions. And for that reason, there really was uh, no factual or legal uh, change that justifies overruling Roe and Casey today. Justice Alito uh, also quoted Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in his opinion. Uh, The Ginsburg quote was that Roe halted a political process that was moving in a reform direction and thereby, I believe, prolonged divisiveness and deferred stable settlement uh, of the issue. Uh, I'm wondering, just as somebody who obviously held uh, Justice Ginsburg in high regard, what did you think of Alito quoting her like that? I, I think that the ability to make the decision whether to continue or end a pregnancy is absolutely um, central to people's liberty, to their equality, and the, the fact that recognizing that under the Constitution has caused um, harm, discord, that you know, it short-circuited a process, I just don't think there's any support in that. Because again, um, the court has said for 100 years that people should be able to make these most basic decisions, that these are the decisions at the heart of what liberty means, at the heart of what it means to be free. And that's exactly what the Constitution is for. It is designed to protect those most basic liberties, those most basic rights, so that they're not up um, for vote. They're not up for the political process. And that's exactly what the court had done for 50 years until today. What does it mean for women and girls who might want to get an abortion uh, that in some states now they cannot, uh, with no exceptions at all? 
practically speaking, as somebody who is an expert in this, what, what does that mean? What is it going to, what will, what will you, you said that your organization said this is going to ignite a public health emergency. What do you mean by that? Well, a- abortion is an integral part of reproductive health care. And it's really important for people to understand that having access to abortion is really critical to people's health and their lives. Um, Pregnancies are not simple. Uh, Complications can arise during pregnancy. People can have pre-existing health conditions that can make pregnancy more difficult. Um, And as a result, we know that around the world, when abortion becomes illegal, when it's criminalized, women's health, their lives, they suffer. Um, There will be more pregnancy complications. We will see more deaths from maternal mortality. That is just the reality. That's what the facts show. And that's what we have seen around the world when abortion is made illegal. Former Vice President uh, Pence celebrated today's ruling. He said, quote, having been given this second chance for life, capital L life, we must not rest and must not relent until the sanctity of life is restored to the center of American law in every state in the land. Do you think that if Republicans take the House and Senate in the fall, that there will be an attempt to institute a a nationwide abortion ban? Or do you think this is pretty much going to be fought at the state level? Well, I think what we know is that some some of those who have been working for many years to oppose the the constitutional right to abortion have already said that their ultimate goal is to oppose a nationwide federal ban on abortion. So we know that that is that is their intention. That is their goal. And I absolutely expect that they will continue pursuing that goal. And so it's something that everyone needs to be deeply, deeply concerned about right now um, that the fight is in the states. It's becoming a state by state issue. But it is clear that the goal of some is to make abortion illegal and criminal across the entire country. Julie Rickleman, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. The security concerns at the Supreme Court now as even more protesters on both sides of this divisive issue show up. Plus, as the justices now kick abortion rights to the states, where does this leave protections for women and girls in states with murky laws on the books? We're going to get into that next. Stay with us. Washington, D.C. police are ready to ensure demonstrations across the city remain free of violence, they say, following the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. You can see video of officers here marching in front of the U.S. Capitol in body gear carrying small shields. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser says the city is providing appropriate resources to try to keep the city safe. CNN's Whitney Wilde is live at the Supreme Court for us. Whitney, security was a concern even before today's decision. What's the situation like there now? Well, right now it is extremely calm. This is a large group. It is a very large crowd. But so far, at last check, there have been no arrests. Uh, we have not seen police have to swoop in uh, and really react to anything since this opinion came down. It was actually after the opinion came down that the crowd actually got a lot calmer. There had been some confrontations prior. The opinion came down, and then things really calmed calmed down here. At present, uh, this is almost entirely a crowd of people who are out here protesting the Supreme Court decision. Let me give you a live look at just how big this crowd has grown, Jake, over the last several hours. There are hundreds and hundreds of people here. Uh, They have been streaming in for several hours. Law enforcement here, you can see they're along the perimeter. But again, we haven't, we've no reason to believe uh, that there's been any incidents. We haven't seen any. We haven't heard of any. Again, Capitol Police saying no arrests so far. Uh, Because this is, you know, a group entirely, you know, basically representing one 
inside, there's a very minimal risk at this point of a clash between opposing groups. That's always a really big concern for law enforcement when you have these large-scale protests. The other big concern for law enforcement, Jake, is that someone will see this crowd and see an opportunity to commit an act of mass casualty violence. The big concern is that the domestic violent extremists will use this as an opportunity, use it as a justification to carry out an act of violence. A law enforcement so concerned about that, Jake, that the Department of Homeland Security issued a memo uh, shortly after this ruling came out that said there's that that is a concern, and it also said that uh, federal officials, government officials, as well as uh, abortion providers, pregnancy clinics, uh, these are the types of uh, uh, individuals who may be at most risk following this uh, abortion ruling. So uh, there's a, uh, that's a big concern for law enforcement. So they are ramping up. They're ramping up here in Washington, D.C. There are uh, law enforcement from neighboring agencies pouring into Washington to make this safe. This crowd expected to grow as well as another protest later tonight, Jake. All right, <clears throat> Whitney Weil, thank you so much. I want to bring in the Democratic governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Governor Whitmer, um, I know that you are a strong supporter of abortion rights. What was your reaction when you heard the decision this morning? Well, I think we knew this was coming, and yet it still was like a gut punch. And here's the thing. We cannot let this be the last chapter. We've got to fight. We've got work to do. I filed a lawsuit here in Michigan. I'm trying to protect abortion rights for Michiganders and for women from Ohio and Indiana who come here for reproductive health care as well. So um, we're, we're waging this war. We're trying to keep this 1931 law that makes it a felony, no exceptions for rape or incest, from going into effect. But it's a precarious moment. Are you going to be able to, to block it from going into effect? I mean, it is, it is the law of Michigan. So I filed this lawsuit a couple of months ago. Uh, people thought that it was too early or maybe it wasn't going to be necessary. And obviously it both was timely and absolutely necessary. Um, we are hoping that the court will take action soon. The theory of the lawsuit is that under the Michigan Constitution, women have a due process uh, and equal protection right to privacy and bodily autonomy. And I'm hoping that our judges move swiftly and recognize that right here. But if they don't, what happens? Well, we've got another lawsuit that got an injunction against the 1931 law, so it has not gone into effect, um, but that is being appealed. So as I said, it's precarious, but right now women in Michigan can still access all the same reproductive care that they've been able to access for the last 49 years. Uh, but it is a precarious moment, and that's why I'm pushing on our Supreme Court to act swiftly. This is an urgent need. I, I'm assuming that you don't have the votes in the Michigan legislature to just overturn the law. Oh, that's a safe assumption, Jake. Plus, not only that, the leadership in our Michigan legislature, the Republican leaders, have said they are happy that this 1931 law could go back into effect. Every Republican running for governor in the state of Michigan has embraced the 1931 law, making it a felony, no exceptions for rape or for incest. That's how stark this moment is. That's why this is in a critical time for people to get engaged, to get motivated, to register to vote. And we got to turn it out this fall because this is very much at stake in this upcoming election as well. You noted that women and girls from uh, neighboring Indiana and Ohio come to Michigan uh, for uh, reproductive health care for abortion, uh, abortions if they, if they want them. Um, right now, abortion is legal in Indiana and Ohio, but both states have legislatures poised to, to ban abortion. Um, are you concerned not only uh, about uh, those women and girls and what happens, but 
their ability to travel to Michigan, given the fact that some states are trying to criminalize travel to other states to get an abortion. Absolutely. And, you know, the Michigan legislature has already introduced bills to throw nurses in jail for 10 years. I mean, this is happening in all of these states. During the pandemic, we know that they closed uh, access for women, and that's when we saw an influx from Ohio and Indiana. Um, Being able to travel is something that people with resources have, and time. That means we're going to cut a whole swath of people out of the ability just to get basic reproductive health care that we've all come to rely on. And the thought that I, as a 50-year-old woman who's always had these rights for most of my life, um, is, is now watching my daughters get their rights scaled back, be considered not full American citizens with the right to bodily autonomy and make their own health care decisions is devastating. And that's why this fight is, is not just about the individual, it's about all of us. Do you think that this happening in Michigan will get Democrats to the polls in November, or do you think that the, the electoral result, the effect, might, might be negligible? Well, you know what, Jake? I was raised by a pro-choice Republican father. Um, I am a pro-choice Democrat. There are people who support women's right to make their own decisions. 70% of Michiganders do. So that transcends party line. I think that it will be a big motivator for people, but I can't assume it. We're going to have to be organized. We're going to have to draw Republicans and independents who are pro-choice into this effort uh, because it, it, when 70% of us believe this is the right, but six people in D.C. and a gerrymandered legislature continues to make it harder and harder. We all have to be called into action right now. While I have you, I want to quickly get your uh, response to the January 6th committee hearings. We saw um, the committee mentioning Michigan is one of the states where Trump was trying to enact the scheme of creating a slate of fake electors. I want you to listen to tape testimony from the Michigan Senate Majority Leader, Republican Mike Shirky. Did you make the point to the president that you were not going to do anything that violated Michigan law. I believe we did. Uh, whether or not it was the, those exact words or not, but we we're, I think that the words that, that uh, I would have more likely used is we were going to follow the law. What was your response when you heard his testimony? I wasn't surprised. Uh, he and I have had that conversation. I know that he did that. They did the right thing. That's good. You know what? We should, at the very minimum, expect people to follow the law. Uh, so it's refreshing when some of them do. I'm glad that that he did. They also went to D.C. and entertained the the thought of it with the president. And that's something that I think is um, is concerning. But at the end of the day, they did the right thing. And thank goodness for it. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Next, outside of Washington, how today's Supreme Court decision might become a bigger motivating factor for voters at the polls. That part of the debate is ahead. Stay with us. The current, uh, the recent Supreme Court ruling will affect uh, states in many different ways. Take a look at this map. So we see 13 states. They're going to see a near immediate impact. Those are states with so-called trigger laws designed to go into effect if the Supreme Court overturned Row. Let's bring in Mary Ziegler. She's a law professor at UC Davis Law School. Also with us, Casey Hunt, uh, our chief national affairs correspondent here at CNN. Mary, let me start with you. How is this decision going to impact different parts of the country? Well, uh, as you mentioned, Jake, um, in roughly half the country, abortion is going to become illegal almost immediately. 
Um, there'll be a kind of group of states in the middle, including Virginia, that have to kind of figure out how far they want to go, if they want to go all the way to bans at fertilization or they're going to stop somewhere in the middle, like 15 weeks. And there are progressive states, um, like California, where I am right now, where states will have to decide how far they want to go uh, in protecting their own doctors against potential legal liability from red states, as well as welcoming people from conservative states into their borders to access abortion. And Casey, obviously, this is going to make life very different for women and girls all over the country. Very different. And it's really going to be a pretty remarkable, you know, there's not a lot of other good examples or parallels nowadays, considering that the, the, the gay marriage decision that came down from the court, where there are clear geographic lines where the rights uh, of people are different. Um, and so we've already got our initial map. And, you know, as the professor was just saying, that is going to change uh, with time. And you know, I, I think it's going to be important to look and see how that uh, starts to affect our politics. I mean, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley was already on a conference call with reporters in his home state uh, just this morning slash afternoon talking about how he thinks this will make liberals move out of red states and ultimately hand more Senate seats to Republicans, which, of course, would solidify uh, any advantage they might have in our electoral college, in our elections. Uh, which, of course, this is fundamentally what it's about. It's our elections and who won those elections that got us to this point today. Mary, uh, do you think that the American legal debate on abortion is now over uh, in terms of U.S. Supreme Court cases? Uh, or are we going to see other cases popping up here in D.C.? Obviously, in the state level, it's going to be different. I think it's not over at the U.S. Supreme Court level, too. We saw in, in Justice uh, Thomas's opinion um, and Justice Alito's majority, some kind of a wink and a nod to the idea that maybe there are fetal rights in the Constitution. We saw Justice Kavanaugh kind of worrying out loud about cases involving retroactive liability for abortions that have already been performed or efforts to regulate abortions that are happening in blue states by red states. So I think that th this battle in the courts will continue in the short term. And of course, just as much as Roe v. Wade didn't settle this conflict, today's decision isn't going to stop people who support abortion rights from trying to change the Supreme Court, um, reinstitute some kind of protection for abortion rights, even if that takes um, years. So, Casey, uh, in May, CNN polled Americans on whether they wanted the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Sixty-six percent of the public said no. Thirty-four yeah. percent said yes. Is this going to have an effect on the midterm elections? Oof. Well, those are um, an interesting set of data points. First, I think your what you said, the, the poll you said, where the majority of people said don't overturn Roe versus Wade. You saw in John Roberts, the chief justice's writing today, an attempt to speak to that political reality. He wanted to handle this case differently. He wanted to take a piece of the original Roe decision, make it, you know, get rid of it, essentially strike what's called the viability provision and handle this case that way without completely overturning Roe versus Wade. And honestly, that kind of judicial approach more broadly reflects what we know about where the American public is on this issue. Uh, most people, it seems, when you look at the polling and the numbers, do think there should be some time limit during a pregnancy where abortion is no longer allowed, except in certain cases, like the life of the mother. Typically, when you remove exceptions for rape and incest, that also becomes politically problematic. A number of these states that have trigger laws don't include exceptions for rape or incest already, right off the bat. So I think in terms of the elections, the question is, who is going to get out to vote on this issue? Because it's been Republicans uh, and particularly religious conservatives who have been getting out to vote on this issue for the past 30 years, you know, since Roe was decided, frankly, nearly 50 years. 
It has not motivated Democrats as much because it has seemed like a settled precedent. We also see young voters who are probably most likely to be directly impacted by this decision, not typically as engaged. Uh, you know, I think some recent polling that I saw a few days ago showed only about 30 percent perhaps intend to vote. That's much lower than older voters. So if Democrats can successfully galvanize those voters around this, I could see it making a difference. I also could see it making a difference in some key swing states in a presidential contest. Mm -hmm. But that's different from a midterm. Uh, Mary, uh, one of the things that is interesting about this, uh, Casey just alluded to, which was it seems like the chief justice wanted to allow Mississippi's 15-week ban uh, but not go so far as to overturn Roe. Um, but the conservatives on the court outnumbered him. Right. Quite simply, this is evidence that this is no longer John Roberts' court, right? If, if th there was any doubt about that, this decision kind of puts the final nail in that coffin. Roberts had been outspoken during oral argument about this. Um, there were leaks from the court suggesting that he had been trying to persuade one or more of his colleagues to join him in this sort of what he passed off as a middle ground. Um, that he had no takers. And if he has no takers now um, in Roe, which is, of course, the best known Supreme Court opinion, um, this is when the lights are shining the brightest, when concerns about the court's legitimacy are the most acute, his colleagues just aren't interested in that. And so um, you can question going forward to what extent he'll have any kind of leadership role in shaping the direction of the court. Mary Ziegler, Casey Hunt, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Right across the street from the Supreme Court, this was also a big day at the U.S. Capitol. Congress passed a bipartisan gun safety bill. It's the first in decades. What does this legislation actually do? That's next. In our politics lead, the House of Representatives passed a historic bipartisan gun reform bill this afternoon, marking the first major federal gun safety legislation in decades. Fourteen House Republicans joined Democrats in favor of the measure. Last night, 15 Senate Republicans joined all 50 Senate Democrats on the same bill. And now the legislation awaits President Biden's signature. This comes as the Supreme Court's Thursday ruling on guns took a very different stance and actually expanded gun rights. CNN's Jessica Dean is following all of this. Jessica, what kind of changes will be in this gun legislation? So there's several things that are important to focus on with this gun legislation, Jake, uh, starting with the fact that there's going to be $750 million poured into crisis intervention programs all across the country. And that could also be red flag laws that are going to incentivize states to put those red flag laws into place. It also closes the boyfriend loophole, something that has vexed lawmakers for years. This ensures that anyone that is convicted of domestic violence cannot get their hands on a gun. It's also going to require more gun sellers to register as federally licensed firearm dealers. It's going to bolster the review process for this 18 to 21 year old age group, which is critical uh, and connected to these school shootings with that younger gun owner age group. They're going to incentivize states to be putting those juvenile records into a federal database so they can search and really take a closer look at these younger gun buyers and who might be um, trying to get their hands on a gun once they turn 18 years old. And one more thing to keep in mind, Jake, as well, is the millions and millions of dollars that's going to go into mental health funding. Uh, that was key uh, for Republicans, something they really wanted in as well as Democrats, Jake. It's interesting, Jessica, unlike Senate Republican leadership, uh, Republican House leaders encourage their members to vote against the bill. Uh, some notable names are on that list. 
That's right. And we saw from House Leader Kevin McCarthy, Elise Stefanik, Steve Scalise, the top three Republicans in the GOP whipping against this bill, telling their members to vote no. And here are the ones that went against that. The 14 House Republicans who did join uh, with Democrats to pass this legislation. And as you mentioned, some familiar names there, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, uh, as well as a host of others who did buck uh, GOP leadership in the House to join with the Democrats and get this through. As we mentioned, it now goes to President Biden's desk. And Jake, this was not something that people really had on their bingo card for 2022. They didn't see uh, this this gun safety legislation ever having a chance of making it out. So it is significant to see this head to the president's desk. I couldn't help but notice uh, Congressman Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas who represents Uvalde, Uh, He voted for this as well. Jessica Dean reporting from Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Coming up next, what a source is telling CNN about a new subpoena tied to an investigation into the scheme to put forward fraudulent electors. Stay with us. In our politics lead, former President Trump was told in numerous ways and no uncertain terms that the Justice Department cannot and would not snap its fingers and change the outcome of the presidential election. This is how Trump responded to that news, according to former Justice Department official Richard Donahue in his testimony before the January 6th committee yesterday. He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. CNN's Pamela Brown has been reporting on this extensively. And Pamela, the January 6th investigation isn't just in D.C. We're learning that the Republican Party chair in Arizona was just subpoenaed what are federal investigators trying to find out? Yeah, so, so the DOJ probe is clearly heating up. In fact, as we learn, federal investigators, Jake, have sent subpoenas to Kelly Ward. She is the head of the Republican National um, Committee there in Arizona and her husband. So what this shows you is that this probe is widening and it's very focused on this slate of fake electors. You know, as you well know, that this idea that uh, these people who were Trump supporters convened, uh, they became alternate slates of electors. And the end goal, apparently, was to come to Washington and present with to uh, Mike Pence, the vi- former vice president, the choice, you know, and, and they would hope that he would go toward the uh, the Trump supporters. Now, of course, that didn't happen, but they did convene. And in fact, Arizona is one of the states that sent a fake certificate to the National Archives that was then, as we know, rejected. So uh, they have been subpoenaed and their lawyer uh, gave a statement saying that this probe is based on allegations of First Amendment protected activity. Um, But clearly, DOJ is focusing in on these seven battleground states that Trump lost where this fake elector scheme happened. And Pamela, we also heard more details on a laundry list of sitting members uh, of, of Congress uh, asking for pardons, Representative Matt Gates, for example, asking for a pardon uh, even before January 6th. Why? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, why? Because they were allies of Trump and they were the ones involved in the lawsuits, the uh, Ken Paxton lawsuit to the Supreme Court, decertifying the election results in Arizona and Pennsylvania. Now, it is worth noting, though, the only Republican congressman who has come forward to confirm it, essentially, is Mo Brooks. He's come out, he's confirmed it, he has defended it. He said he did that because um, he was concerned, in his words, of the socialist Democrats um, coming after him. And he said, though, in that that email that was shown by the committee uh, yesterday that he then released a, a longer version of that Matt Gates also wanted a pardon. Now, Matt Gates has not denied it. He hasn't confirmed it, uh, but he is just calling the committee a, a sideshow, as we've heard him say repeatedly. Then you have Scott Perry, 
Scott Perry continues to deny this. He is the Pennsylvania congressman that he denies that he's ever asked for a pardon. But we saw the video of Cassidy Hutchinson, the aide to former chief of staff Mark Meadows, under oath saying that Scott Perry asked her directly for a pardon. Um, and then Louis Gohmert, also another name that was mentioned uh, of a Republican who sought a pardon from the Trump White House. He is also denying he is saying that he was seeking pardons for others unassociated uh, with the government. Now, uh, we've heard members from the committee respond to these Republican congressmen who have either denied it or they're not confirming it. And they say, look, all you need to know is that the witnesses we have that said that they sought a pardon, they were under oath. They were under oath. These Republicans who were denying it, they were not. Yeah, and it's not a crime to lie to the American people. It's a crime to lie under oath. Pamela yep. Brown, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Just a few weeks ago here on The Lead, Congresswoman Barbara Lee shared her personal story, her experience having an abortion back in the pre-Roe v. Wade days. She's back today with what she says she wants to see happen in the wake of today's Supreme Court decision. Stay with us. Hello and welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Leading this hour, quote, a slap in the face for women. That was the quote from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi after the Supreme Court's Republican-appointed majority ruled that a constitutional right declared 50 years ago had been wrongly decided. Roe v. Wade no longer stands. Women and girls no longer have a constitutionally protected right to an abortion in the United States. Justice Samuel Alito, writing his majority opinion, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. The court's decision is in opposition to public opinion. Polls show two out of three Americans did not want the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. At least one conservative justice today indicated that the court does not plan to stop with abortion, citing the decisions that protected the use of contraception and same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. Justice Clarence Thomas, writing in his concurring opinion, quote, in future cases, we should reconsider all of the court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence and Obergefell. Those rulings Thomas called errors and said the court has a duty to correct them. As CNN's Manu Raji reports for us now, Republicans are largely celebrating today, but for abortion rights advocates, the ruling has unleashed a torrent of criticism, grief, panic, and fear. We trust women. We won't go back. Casting aside 50 years of settled law, the Supreme Court ended a woman's constitutional right to an abortion and in the process, roiled the nation's political landscape. I am spitting mad over this. Roe versus Wade belongs on the ash heap of history with Dred Scott and Plessy. Justice Samuel Alito, writing for the conservative majority in a 5-4 opinion, called Roe v. Wade egregiously wrong and deeply damaging. The three liberal justices dissenting, warning the ruling will lead to the curtailment of women's rights and of their status as free and equal citizens. On Capitol Hill, the reaction was swift. Disgraceful, disgraceful judgment. It is absolutely a major issue on the, uh, on the ballot. Largest governmental overreach in the history of our lifetime. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy told CNN he supports codifying a 15-week abortion ban at the national level. The Supreme Court upheld Mississippi's 15-week ban in its ruling overturning Roe, with the support of Chief Justice John Roberts, who opposed overturning Roe entirely. The right to life has been vindicated. The voiceless will finally have a voice. Congressional Democrats left with little recourse, given they lack 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a GOP filibuster. The senator from my state, the senator from West Virginia, senators from everywhere, 
If you say that you're for women, then do not use an old law that was not even, again, in the countries of the United States to stop protection for them. But two Democratic senators stand in the way of changing the filibuster rules, fearing a future GOP majority would enact an even more conservative agenda. At the White House, President Biden called for electing more Democrats to Congress. This fall, Roe is on the ballot. Personal freedoms are on the ballot. The right to privacy, liberty, equality, they're all on the ballot. While Democrats hope the issue motivates voters in November, many Republicans believe the midterms will turn on the economy. Most people are pretty entrenched uh, with what they believe on this particular issue and what ought to happen. But the fight ultimately may be on the state level. 26 states likely to ban abortion completely, including 13 that set abortion bans into motion as soon as Roe is overturned. The emotion palpable in the streets. This decision is an outrage. It is one important victory. It's not the end, but we are dancing on the grave of Roe versus Wade. Now, some reaction from the two key senators who played the decisive role to ensure that Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed in 2018. Susan Collins of Maine, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, both of them contending that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were not necessarily straightforward, in fact, misleading in how they said that they would hold legal precedent, both in their testimony and when they spoke with them. Collins saying that the decision is inconsistent with what Gorsuch and Kavanaugh said in their meetings and they were because they both were insistent of the importance of upholding longstanding legal precedent. Jake. All right, Manu Raja on Capitol Hill. Thank you. Today's Supreme Court decision has near immediate impact in 13 different states that have so-called trigger laws, specifically banning abortion once the court has overturned Roe. This has already gone into effect in half of the states you see highlighted on this map. The other half will go into effect in the next 30 days. We should note we know another dozen or so states that have plans to introduce laws banning abortion after this ruling. CNN's Nadia Romero joins us now live from Jackson, Mississippi, where an abortion ban will go into an effect within 10 days with almost no exceptions. Nadia, walk us through exactly what happens now for Mississippi women and girls who need or want to seek an abortion. Well, Jake, it doesn't happen right away. The law doesn't go into effect. There's about a 10-day grace period here uh, because the attorney general has to certify this into law. So for the next 10 days or so, women can still come to this facility behind me. This is the only, the last standing abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi. And right on that sidewalk behind me is where they're often met with dozens of protesters with signs and bullhorns trying to convince them to turn around and not get an abortion. And the uh, folks that work here at this clinic tell me that they were out this morning telling women that this place had shut down, that they could no longer get an abortion, that it was illegal. That's not true. And that's their big message. They want people to know that if you come out to this facility, you can still get an abortion here in the state of Mississippi over those next 10 days, and they will still be performing those abortions. Uh, Many of the people here were very upset, feeling that there uh, was a lot of misinformation out on the internet and in social media to encourage women not to come out here today. Uh, So you can still get an abortion in the state of Mississippi through uh, the next 10 days. After that, women will have to turn to trust funds. The pink house behind me has a pink fund where women can access um, different monetary amounts to help them travel to other states to get abortions to get that health care. Jake? What's been the reaction like in Mississippi to the ruling today? 
Well, for women here uh, and men who work at this clinic, this was the saddest of sad days. With that memo, the leak um, that this was coming, they tried to prepare themselves, but all of them told me, Jake, that there was no way to prepare for that ruling, that decision coming down from the Supreme Court. Many of them had risked their own lives, getting death threats and being followed home by who they call religious terrorists, people who would come out and protest the clinic. And so we saw a lot of tears, a lot of heads hung low, uh, many people who believe that this is the worst day in American history uh, and during their lifetime. But this is a very uh, day full of jubilation and celebration for people who know that Mississippi is ground zero for this. Uh, we heard from the governor who says that this is a day to celebrate because it was this law in Mississippi, the 15-week ban, uh, Jake, that pushed this through to the Supreme Court. And they saw plenty of failures being struck down by federal uh, different federal judges. Uh, but since 2018, pushing this forward through the highest court of the land and finally getting uh, the ruling that they wanted. Jake. All right. Nadia Romero reporting live for us from Jackson, Mississippi. Thanks so much. Joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. You've been very open uh, about what it was like for you to seek an abortion in the days before Roe v. Wade. Um, so what was your reaction to today's news that we are going back to that? Well, I tell you, Jake, even though uh, we knew it was coming, this was gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. Uh, And it's the first time, mind you, that the Supreme Court has taken away, taken away a constitutional right, which has taken us backwards. And yes, I remember the days before Roe. Uh, We cannot go back. Uh, You you heard earlier the the types of uh, decisions that could come down that are going to take away other rights from people. And so this is a constant. This is a crisis. It's a constitutional crisis, if you ask me. Well, then uh, in the day before Roe, uh, it was illegal to have an abortion. Now they're trying to criminalize abortions once again. Uh, people should have their own right to make their own health care decisions, not judges nor politicians. So, I mean, Roe v. Wade became law of the land in 1973. So probably most people watching us right now do not know or remember what it was like before Roe v. Wade. Um, So what was it like? Before Roe versus Wade, first of all, abortions were uh, illegal. The the primary cause of black women's death during that period were septic abortions. Uh, Yes, I had an abortion, it was illegal. I had to leave California, go back to El Paso, Texas, go across the border to Mexico, go to a back alley. uh, And I was terrified. Uh, First of all, I was terrified that I might die But secondly, I was terrified because I knew it was illegal. (laughs) And coming back across the border, I didn't know if I was going to get stopped. I didn't know getting into California if I was going to get stopped and arrested. And so back at the days now where abortions and abortion providers uh, are going to be criminalized. And that is is horrific. That's terrible. And we cannot let this happen. Uh, And so we cannot go back. Uh, And we said earlier, trust women. We're going to deal with this. We're going to see those at the who are trying to take away a woman's right to make her own decisions about reproductive, her own reproductive decisions, her, her freedom to decide. We're, we're going to see them at the ballot box in November because this is a, a terrible, terrible moment. 
But it's also a moment, like you said, where, where many do not know a world without Roe. And believe you me, uh, I am convinced, I am convinced that people are going to show up because you saw and you mentioned what the poll said earlier. People support Roe. Whether you agree with abortions or not, people de support a person's right to make their own health care decisions about their reproductive rights. Last month, you told me that one of your many concerns uh, about today uh, is how this ruling will disproportionately impact low-income women um, who are disproportionately minority because they will not have the same ability to, to travel to states where the where abortion remains legal. Um, some states, such as Missouri, have even sought to, to ban residents from traveling outside the state to get an abortion. Um, now, Justice Kavanaugh uh, is trying to tamp down concerns on that. Uh, he wrote, quote, uh, may a state bar uh, a resident of that state from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion? In my view, the answer is no, based on the constitutional right to interstate travel. But but how concerned are you about this issue? I'm very concerned because, like I said, they're trying to take away all of our constitutional rights, quite frankly. So we have to be very concerned. I'm glad the president spoke out today about that. Uh, black and brown women disproportionately are low income, unfortunately. And so they don't have the money. We don't have the money to travel to other states. We don't have the money to provide uh to be able to pay for childcare. Uh, we don't have the money because we're primarily low wage workers. So how in the world are we even going to travel even without a travel ban? And so yes, this is, a, is impacting rural women, younger women, women of color. It's, it's impacting black and brown people in disproportionate rates. And so you, you understand the, the racist nature also of, of this decision. And again, the ballot box, we have got to elect state and local officials who trust women and who know that a personal decision about their own reproductive uh, decisions is personal, it's private, just like it was with me. I did not want to talk about it because it was private, but I was forced to behind what was taking place in Mississippi and Texas and now. And that's the decision that people should be able to make without interference. And so we're going to have to help fund people who want to travel. We're going to have to make sure these states elect people who really uh, support and, and trust uh, women in their decisions that they make. So we're going to fight, though. We're, we're no way taking this sitting down. We're going to fight and show up at the ballot box like you would not believe. It's galvanizing a heck of a lot of people who never thought they would see this day. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. How will the monumental Supreme Court decision stripping the right to an abortion impact women's health care. You're looking at live pictures right now of the crowds gathered outside the High Court in Washington, D.C. A doctor is going to join us to weigh in on the medical impact of this all next. Then a historic vote in the House, the most significant federal gun reforms in a generation, now headed to President Biden's resolute desk. Stay with us. In our health lead, the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling will impact women and girls' reproductive health care around the United States. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Morthy issued a statement on the ruling today saying, quote, the health of women and pregnant people is put at risk, an effect that will be felt disproportionately in historically marginalized populations, including communities of color, low-income Americans, and rural residents. With us to discuss the health impact of this all is OBGYN Dr. Jennifer Gunter. Dr. Gunter, thanks for joining us. So uh, according to Guttmacher, nearly one in four women in the United States will have an abortion by age 45. So what does this ruling mean 
to one quarter of American women and girls. Yeah, I mean, it means poverty. We know lack of access to having abortion increases your likelihood that you will live in poverty. It means an increased risk of maternal deaths from illegal abortion, from complications during pregnancy that we now can't manage because there's fetal cardiac activity and maternal death from pregnancy complications. It also means people who have a miscarriage might have difficulty getting access to drugs to treat that or an ectopic pregnancy. And it could even impact contraception. It's absolutely far reaching and devastating. Well, let's talk about um, the pregnancies um, that are complicated, uh, complication uh, issues, health issues. What, what, what does the ruling mean for those patients? Well, it means we, you know, in many states, doctors won't be able to do anything because many states don't have a health exception. But even if they do, they're uninterpretable. You know, I've personally been in a situation with a sick patient who had a, a serious medical condition and her physicians felt her health would be improved if she were not pregnant. And we had a law where we couldn't do abortions at our medical facility. And I had to call the politician who wrote the law at home to get permission. I, I know uh, someone who had a, a very uh, problem pregnancy where the, the brain of the fetus was actually growing outside of the skull. Uh, the, 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 there was no way that this um, baby was going to live. Um, and the mom got an abortion. Uh, that mom would be forced in some of these states like South Dakota or, or, or Oklahoma, forced to carry the child to term? Right. And though imagine, say you're pregnant with, you know, and so now you have all these people touching your belly and asking you, you know, about your baby that that, you know, is going to be born to die. But imagine if you get a pregnancy complication, say you get really high blood pressure at 32 weeks and then we do it. We want to deliver you early, but that fetus is going to die when it's born. So have we now done an abortion? I mean, the, the laws are really uninterpretable. Something else, and, and you touched on this, I don't know if folks understand, uh, quite often uh, a woman who miscarries has to then go get an, an abortion. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So so sometimes when people have a miscarriage, they have what we called, a, you know, a missed abortion or an incomplete. And so the process starts, but it doesn't finish. And so we prescribe medications, the same medications that we use for medical abortion. There have already been women reporting online. I've seen reports on Facebook of them showing up to pharmacies, ask, you know, asking for their prescription and being turned away because the pharmacist was worried they were having an abortion. Wisconsin Planned Parenthood says that they've paused all abortion procedures until there's clarification on whether or not Wisconsin's 1849 law is enforceable. We've heard the argument that even if abortion's not legal in one state, a woman can travel to another state to receive the procedure. Um, but what's your take on whether this increased influx to ab abortion clinics in other states might make it more difficult for women to have access to time-sensitive appoint appointments? Well, yeah, I mean, if you have to book airfares and travel, to, and, and never mind the cost or knowing how to find access to people who might be able to provide funding for you, and then it's time away. And if, you know, many people who have abortions have other children, so then you have to, uh, you know, arrange childcare. Every single time you make it harder, you make it harder for people to access care. You increase costs. The, the point is the cruelty. So Justice Clarence Thomas argued in a concurring uh, uh, opinion 
that the court should also reconsider other related rulings uh, on same-sex relationships, that's Lawrence, on same-sex marriage, that's Obergefell, and on contraception, that's the Lawrence, I'm sorry, that's the Griswold decision, Griswold v. Connecticut. Now, this is not part of the ruling itself, um, but what was your reaction as an OBGYN? There are a lot of women out there who obviously rely on birth control pills and contraception. Well, I mean, my response is this is fascism. I mean, it's really what it is. We should call it what it is. This is fascism. Restricting people, you know, making up lies about how contraception works, making up lies about abortion, you know, to sort of get your ideology across is is fascism. We have contraception saves lives. Having people being able to control their reproductive destiny is so important. Never mind all the medical conditions that hormonal contraception can treat. And so, I mean, we already have a problem with contraception when we had the Hobby Lobby case, which, you know, allowed basically employers, you know, if they believe a contraception is abortion, they're allowed to sort of use that as a, as a back way around it. And, you know, this is, this is, absolutely absurd that we're even thinking about this and what's on the table is huge. Dr. Jennifer Gunter, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. The other Supreme Court precedents that might be at risk are same-sex marriage and contraception next on the chopping block. Stay with us. Neil Gorsuch, for whom you voted, Don't you think he's probably going to vote to overturn Roe versus Wade if given the chance? I actually don't. I had a very long discussion with Justice Gorsuch in my office, and he pointed out to me that he is a co-author of a whole book on precedent. At age well. Uh, we're back in our politics lead with more on the shockwave and impact from the nation's highest court, striking down Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 ruling, the legalized abortion nationwide. Uh, let's discuss. Now, Jonah, you have written that Roe v. Wade should be overturned because it was a, quote, fatally flawed constitutional ruling and that overturning it would be good for the country. Why? Uh, well, I can get into the because it's made up law in terms of it's being bad. It's basically law. what Alito said. It's basically it's, and look, that's it, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. She said it would be much better if they had grounded the abortion right in equal protection instead of a due process claim. Um, I think it's good for the country because for the first time in a very long time, this question gets put back to the states and to voters and to legislatures. All these politicians, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, can't hide behind the Supreme Court making these decisions for them. They have to make the arguments themselves. It'll send this stuff back to uh, the places where it belongs. And it doesn't mean I, I, I'm sympathetic to Justice Roberts's concurrence. I think the argument of the majority is correct on the merits. But this is also just a huge shock to the system. And it's going to be a while before it works itself out. And it could have political consequences that are bad for Republicans or um, good for Democrats or, or, or something totally unforeseeable. But as a, on the merits, I think it's the right decision. Well, if I may. Yeah. Three of us at this table today now don't have the same rights as the two of you to control our own bodies. That's what happened today. And so I I disagree because fundamentally, obviously, um, what we're talking about and the way Americans see this, right, is it's not just about abortion. It's about the fundamental right to control your own body. And frankly, it is also about whether or not government should be making these personal private decisions or women. Now that it does go back to the states and frankly goes back to the electorate in the context of this election, 
I think you're going to see Democrats obviously pushing this issue. A majority of Americans support Roe v. Wade. So as and Republican candidates are going to have to take a position, not just on Roe v. Wade. Thanks to Clarence Thomas, they're also going to have to talk about contraception. They're also going to have to talk about marriage equality because he certainly made it clear that this underlying right to privacy is also something they'd reconsider. Yeah, As a political matter, I think you're entirely right or that's entirely fair. Uh, Justice Thomas was writing alone. Brett Kavanaugh directly rejected that. You can't get to a majority without Brett Kavanaugh. He's been in the majority more than any other justice. Um, you don't have five votes to get Brett rid Kavanaugh of. Brett Kavanaugh also said something about the president of Roe v. Wade in his hearing, so I'm not sure I take his and, judgment. I'm not sure we can look, trust I, him. I think so. the media has been completely wrong about these guys misleading the public about what they you say think about that's presidents. that's not true? I think, think it's not fair. I can't speak to what, he said, what anybody said to Susan Collins in private. Because Manchin says the same thing, too. They Both, both of them have said that, they, that Kavanaugh and um, Gorsuch misled them. Both yeah, it, it, look, they gave political answers, answers in a political process, but like the quotes attributed to Amy Coney Barrett about, um, you know, precedents can't be overturned was taken out of context. Totally. About 100%. She was pretty clear about what yeah. she was going to do. No sure. question about that. Let, let, me, let me ask you something, because it, it, Jonah alluded to this. It does seem like John Roberts, as somebody said earlier, this is not the John Roberts court anymore. He, he had a path and, and the other conservative justice, he wanted to allow Mississippi to ban abortions at 15 weeks, and that was, I guess, going to be some sort of middle ground on this, but not overturn Roe v. Wade. And the other justices said, nope. No. Two things. First of all, it is still John Roberts' court on racial remedies, on religion, and on guns. Remember, so this is, but this is one area where he wanted a compromise. He said, not yet. He, did, he, wa- he was ready to uphold the 15-week ban on abortions from Mississippi, but he reminded everyone, when, we, when they took this case, they said they were only going to be looking at that. They weren't going to be looking at overturning Roe v. Wade. But Mississippi officials, seeing Amy Coney Barrett take her seat, they pushed for more. And he said, we should wait. He's certainly sympathetic with where the majority is, but he just didn't want it to go now. And he had a really interesting line, Jake, that I think reflects a kind of overt humility that we haven't seen from him, where he said... Both sides, the majority and dissent, seem to be, be free of doubt. I don't share that freedom from doubt here. Mm. I think that this is more complex. So that's where he's coming from. It's not entirely John Roberts' court the way it was before Anthony Kennedy, you know, right after Anthony Kennedy left and he had so much control. Having this supermajority removes him from many equations. I think that's such an interesting point about... Um about his his concurrence and this idea of doubt, because both the gun decision and the abortion con- decision were rooted in this idea that they know what history is and that if it's not rooted in history, it doesn't exist. And that's, I mean, their understanding of history is what it is. But I think that as the American people evaluate the court's role in, in setting the terms of their lives, that's going to be a big issue. How many Americans are going to be looking at uh, what what is rooted in our country's history and saying they want that to be determinative of the rights that they have today in the year 2022. It's one of the reasons why on abortion, when you have a country where almost 70 percent of Americans say they want to keep Roe versus Wade in place, and then the court does what the 30, you know, the 35 or 36 percent of Americans wants, it leads to real questions about how long that kind of imbalance between what the court is doing and what the public wants can continue. Well, especially given that, and actually the numbers I've seen are closer to 80% of Americans support Roe v. Wade, about 75% say that they actually would not vote for someone who did not support Roe v. Wade. But also, let's remember, 
I mean, I'm 55 years old. For 50 years of my life, I've had that. I've had a right that I now no longer have. I think the court also doesn't under has not understanding how this feels, what this means to people to say, we are taking this away from you. You had a right at it's, the beginning of the day. It's not where their head is at. No, they, they know, don't they, care. They know. They but know that goes to feel. this legitimacy they know how issue. Feel, but that didn't matter. I think they would, right. they would disagree, though. I mean, I think if, if, if I were Samuel Alito, and yes. I'm not, but I think he would say, <laughs> I'm just letting the states decide. You have in Washington, D.C., the same rights that you had yeah. uh, yesterday. And that's what I believe Alito Yeah, well, moreover, like, I, I understand that the, the polling on Roe v. Wade, qua Roe v. Wade, is what it is. The polling on actual sort of uh, limit restrict, unfettered restrictions in the first 15 weeks yeah. versus mid, you know, second term and versus third term are much closer to the pro-life position, or at least the anti-Roe position, than a lot of people are talking about. Moreover, what, you know, look, look I, I agree emotions are high in all this, but politically and, and sort of culturally, get ready for a lot of people to obsess about Oklahoma City. Because in, in California and in New York, women have not had this right taken away in practical terms. They're going to have the same access to abortion that they had before this decision. And so all of the media light, all of the rhetoric from Democrats is going to be aimed at states, justifiably, at places where abortion rights are going to be restricted or access to abortion is going to be restricted. You're going to see in purplish states these, these fights play out. Virginia already has said, Glenn Youngkin has said he's going to look at a 15-week. The governor of um, And, not, and I, that's, I, the same, that's, that's actually still better access to abortion than a lot of European actually countries. what you're going to see, I can tell you, the Democratic, the Democratic strategy is you have Mitch McConnell and Republicans saying they are open to a 100% all-out ban on abortion. So when we are talking about control of the Senate, and again, our data shows this is not only an issue that motivates voters, it mobilizes voters. I mean, I think that that's exactly right. The, the problem, Jonah, is that the reality is that the, the position that a lot of conservatives have, top to bottom, from Oklahoma all the way to Washington, yeah. is that abortion should be illegal nationwide. And as long as that is the position, it's not hyperbole to suggest that that is what is coming next. And, and beyond that, I mean, there are some pretty large states where a lot of people live where abortion um, is restricted today and could be severely restricted. Just think about the state of Texas. A lot of Democrats and liberals live in Texas, sure. but their rights to an abortion are going to be restricted. Let me ask, what do you think world? it means that um, the governor of Florida, uh, who may well be the next president or the next Republican nominee, DeSantis, that he, and he could, let's be honest, he could pass anything. And the Florida legislature, would, you know, if you wanted to Mount Rushmore of his face four times, they would do it. Does Ron DeSantis passed a 15-week ban. He did not pass a all-out ban. Now, I'm not saying the 15-week ban is great or not, but, I mean, he went to the, the muddy middle, you know what I mean, which is probably where polling indicates people are. That's exactly right. And that's where, you know, John Roberts, who's very politically savvy, I should say that for most of my time covering the Supreme Court, I never thought they'd reverse Roe because they were smart Republicans who didn't want to hand Democrats an issue. I don't know if this decision is going to do that, but let me just say, talking about the middle, John Roberts, that's where he wanted to go. I'll let you have the final word, but keep it quick. This, this middle that we're talking about, a ban is a ban is a ban. And the issue for a lot of these voters is who decides. Is it a politician or is it the woman, regardless of the Well, weeks? we're going to keep talking about this for, yes, for, for, for many, many months. So thanks one and all for being here. Uh, and of course, this programming note, if you're like me, you didn't get enough Abby Phillip 
uh, just now. So if you're like me, you can watch Abby Phillip on Inside Politics Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern. Everyone tune in. As gun reform legislation heads to President Biden's desk for a signature, we're going to take a look at one section of that bill that almost tanked the whole deal. Stay with us. President Biden is expected to sign the newly passed bipartisan gun bill into law, marking the first major federal gun safety legislation in decades. It includes $750 million for crisis intervention programs, a requirement for more gun sellers to register as a federally licensed firearm dealer, and a more thorough review process for 18 to 21-year-olds looking to buy guns. The House passed the bipartisan bill today, with 14 House Republicans joining the Democrats. The bill was in jeopardy at one point because of the provision called closing the so-called boyfriend loophole. That's a loophole that allows domestic abusers who are not married, not living with, or do not have a child with the victim to own a gun. And believe it or not, there are folks here in Washington, D.C., lobbying to make sure that guys who beat up their girlfriends are able to buy guns. For the first time in nearly three decades, an amendment is agreed to. Congress has passed a major gun safety bill with bipartisan support. I would argue it will save thousands of lives. We're considering a bipartisan bill that will make our country safer without making it any less free. This is the sweet spot. The compromise package does not include all the broad measures Democrats sought, but it does include a variety of significant steps, from increased funding for mental health to more comprehensive background checks for 18 to 21-year-olds. And it includes one key provision that almost tanked the whole deal. Operating under the boyfriend loophole. The so-called boyfriend loophole continues to be a a challenge. We're going to close the boyfriend loophole. Closing the boyfriend loophole a long-standing goal of advocates for domestic abuse victims. The boyfriend loophole is a gap in federal law. A gap because right now, federal law only bans domestic abusers from buying or owning guns if they were convicted of abuse of a parent, spouse, someone with whom they share a child, or a significant other they were living with at the time. But what about abusive relationships where the couple is dating? but do not fit into those other classifications. According to the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions, partner homicides drop 13% when protective orders cover dating partners. We're going to make sure that every domestic abuser, whether it be a spouse or a boyfriend, has their guns taken away. Yet, despite the fact that researchers have found more than half of the gunmen who committed mass shootings between 2014 and 2019 either killed an intimate partner or family member or had a history of domestic violence, the National Rifle Association has lobbied for years against closing that loophole, arguing that the move, quote, is exploiting real problems like domestic violence to opportunistically target civil rights, like the Second Amendment and constitutional due process. That's right. People who beat up their girlfriends have lobbyists fighting to preserve their ability to buy guns. And gun safety advocates say the NRA's due process argument is a moot point under the new bill. This bill goes out of its way to ensure that due process protections are included. So with this newly passed bill, is the boyfriend loophole finally closed? No, it is not. They went a long way toward addressing it, but um, it 
only includes people that have been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. So domestic abusers of a girlfriend or a boyfriend will only have to relinquish their guns if they are convicted of a misdemeanor, which means victims who have taken one of the first steps of getting a restraining order will still have to live knowing their abusers could be fully armed. These are obviously extremely dangerous individuals, but unfortunately, it does not include those who have been served with a domestic violence restraining order. That moment when somebody, a victim of domestic violence, goes to seek a restraining order is often the most dangerous time for that individual. And perhaps most significantly, this bill only applies to folks who beat their girlfriends after President Biden signs it into law. It does not apply to domestic violence before that point. It does not apply retroactively. And unlike in Florida, where abusers have to prove they're now safe and got their act together, this law has an automatic restoration of all firearms rights after five years for one-time offenders. All of which is a win for the NRA, according to the lead Republican negotiator on the bill, Texas Senator John Cornyn, who touted these limitations and others to a room full of his GOP colleagues. Most of his Republican Senate colleagues and the gun groups lobbying for the girlfriend beaters they still oppose the bill anyway. I think we've threaded the needle away in a, in a way that uh, protects the right of law-abiding citizens, but tries to get at the root of the problem that produced this shooting in Uvalde and has produced similar shooting elsewhere, and I think ultimately will save lives, and to me, that's the ultimate test. Saving lives, that's what this bill is truly aiming to do to prevent another school shooting or grocery store massacre or a senseless death of a domestic abuse survivor. So. Will it? Without a doubt. It really is a momentous occasion and it should not be downplayed. But of course, in my opinion, the work is not done and we'll keep going and keep fighting um, to make sure that all of the loopholes in our gun laws are closed moving forward. According to Everytown for Gun Safety, which is a nonprofit that advocates for stricter gun restrictions, 19 states have already implemented similar provisions to prohibit those convicted of abusing their current and former dating partners from having a gun. A husband and wife in Arizona are subpoenaed as the probe into Donald Trump's fake elector scheme grows. Stay with us. On the heels of an explosive January 6th hearing today, a new subpoena was issued for the Arizona Republican Party chair Kelly Ward and her husband Michael Ward. A source tells CNN this is part of the federal investigation into those slates of fraudulent electors. Let's bring in CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, what are the wards suspected of doing and and what does this tell us about the larger federal probe in Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election? Well, what this tells us, Jake, is that now everybody, anyone who played a part in this effort to to organize this slate of, uh, of, of fake electors is either already subpoenaed or they're about to get subpoenaed. And in this case, we know that these two, uh, we know Kelly Ward was very prominent in the effort to try to get this stuff organized in in Arizona. And the idea being that they would be uh, alternate or so-called alternate electors for, for Donald Trump if that t- time came to pass, obviously. Interesting. We also heard three former uh, Trump Justice Department officials yesterday describing how woefully underqualified they thought Trump's Attorney General pick Jeffrey Clark was. They went into quite some detail. We also learned his home was raided uh, before the hearing started. Uh, What did investigators take? What were they looking for? Well, we know that this is part of this investigation, this broader investigation into the effort to overturn the election. And these investigators came in. They spent three hours or so. And they had uh, apparently a, a, a electronic sniffing dog. He says that they took electronics 
But he also describes what, he's, what he says with this horrific circumstance because he was made to stand out in his jammies while the agents were doing, this, uh, doing their, uh, their search. Take a listen. At one point, uh, you know, 12 agents and two uh, Fairfax County police officers uh, went into my house, uh, searched it for three and a half hours. They even brought along something, Tucker, I've never seen before uh, or heard of, a uh, electronic sniffing dog. And uh, they took all of the electronics from my house. Uh, as you could tell, he's not very familiar with law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of an electronic, but he wanted to be the attorney general. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break. We'll squeeze in this break. We'll be right back. Tomorrow night, join me for a CNN special report, Trumping Democracy, an American Coup. I talked to Republican Congresswoman and Vice Chair of the January 6th Select Committee, Liz Cheney, plus Republican Congressman and Committee Member Adam Kinzinger, as well as Republican election officials from across the country about Donald Trump's efforts to undermine the will of the American people and the ongoing threat to democracy that airs at 8 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. And then Sunday, you can join me for a special edition of State of the Union. In addition to covering the continued fallout from the Supreme Court decision, I'll be in Germany for the G7, and I'll sit down for an exclusive interview with the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on the Tic Tac, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the, C- at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. All two hours, just sitting there for you to enjoy on a hot summer day. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow night. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.